Hi, this is Laura Huey, and you have tuned in to Sociology 9021, which is a graduate seminar in qualitative research methods. And of course, this is being taped courtesy of COVID-19, or I should say this is brought to you by the makers of COVID-19. Uh, I am a little under the weather myself at the moment. I have a touch of the flu. So if you hear my voice start to go in and out, that, that's probably why. And also, if you hear my brain go in and out, that's also probably why. Hang on a sec. I got to slurp some caffeine. Got to keep that throat nice and moist. Mm. There we go. So, visual sociology. The plan for today is to give you a general overview of some of the core aspects of this methodology with the hope that perhaps some of you will go forth and engage yourselves. What is visual sociology? Well, it's using imagery to capture, um, elicit, create research data. And you're probably wondering what this particular picture is. This is a, a picture that I took when I was in Jordan, and um, it was illustrative to me of a phenomenon that I see when I travel widely, which is We've got two tourists. These happen to be Russian tourists. Uh, I know because I had an opportunity to. Uh, they, I had an opportunity to speak to them, and what you see is two people who are attempting, in some sort of fashion, to uh, respect local customs, but didn't quite totally get the memo. And I see this over and over again, like I said, when I travel. And it, to me as a sociologist, I'm always fascinated by human behavior, especially in cultural contexts. And so I took this snap and you're going to see a whole bunch of other pictures that I've taken throughout the course of my career, both personally and professionally. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how I've used them as a sociologist slash criminologist. Let's get started. So what is visual sociology? It's essentially research and theory that addresses the visual dimensions of the social world. Um, a visual sociology approach can include, for example, the use of visual recording devices to capture data. So uh, here I use the term field notes. I, and I'll give you some specific examples shortly, but I use pictures as a way of documenting what's happening when I'm conducting field research, because oftentimes the pictures capture much more nuance and detail than, and complexity and all that other fun stuff that would be very difficult for me to capture just by hand or even uh, orally if I was taking, uh, taking notes and recording them. It also encompasses the study of visual recordings captured by other people as well as the use of photos and other images to communicate ideas. And I'm gonna give you a couple more examples. It can also include the use of photography to take your own pics, as I've said, the creation of documentary films to tell a story. It's one of the under, uh, underexplored, underexploited aspects of visual sociology is documentary film. I have a colleague at Concordia who creates documentaries as a sociologist studying the relationship between humans and nature. Speaking of nature, uh, today it, today's broadcast is uh, co-hosted by Chewbacca and Lucy. You will hear some chomping and some barking. The chomping is uh, them enjoying the treats that I'm using to bribe them into quiet. Like any good uh, mother or slash pet parent, I use bribery, it's fairly effective. 
but because it's not completely effective, expect some barking and some carrying on. I focus a lot on using my own images. However, sometimes it, it makes a lot of sense to employ images that are uh, used, uh, that are, sorry, that were taken by other people for other purposes. That is not pictures specifically taken for a project. And as well, the use of uh, pictures or images to elicit information from a research participant. So we call that photo elicitation, and I'll talk about that as well. If time permits, and uh, by time permitting, I'm talking about my voice not running out, we might also talk about some of the ethical issues around uh, photographing other people as well as using other people's photographs. Dun, dun, dun. I've already talked all about that stuff. I don't know why I have so many slides about the same damn thing. Anyway, let's talk about field notes. I always say that a picture is worth a thousand words and that a good picture can capture things that I, even as a keen-eyed observer, might miss. I also like to take photographs because it helps me to remember things much more clearly after the fact, which is one of the reasons why photo elicitation is such a great technique uh, for communicating with research participants, especially if you're using photos that might elicit memories for someone. It also holds true for the researcher herself. I like to take pictures to remind me, oh, that's right, this is what was going on. This is what I observed. This is how people were feeling. This is how I was feeling and so on. As well, pictures as field notes can help the researcher convey a, a complex idea, an idea that you might not be able to fully capture with a written word. I'm going to show you an example, and you don't try not to laugh, but... Um, this is kind of a, uh, a re fun research project that I worked on about 10 or so years ago. I was interested in um, tourism associated with crime. So crime tourism, terrorism tourism, all that kind of uh, fun stuff for a criminologist. And uh, I went to uh, different types of places associated with crime tourism. That included faux, uh, faux places like... Um, this particular image is from a, the wax, uh, not the wax museum, not Madame Tussauds, though I did go there. Um, it'll come to me. But one of those uh, places where you go to get scared and they show you all sorts of gory stuff and then it's all completely fake. Um, and it's supposed to be fun for the whole family, though I wonder, I often wonder whose family that's fun for. So there's those kinds of places. And as well, I, I went and toured uh, former crime scenes that were part of tours. As well, I went, as I went to museums that documented aspects of crime tourism, such as the Vienna Criminal Museum. So for this particular sequence, it was a, a fun place, a fun palace uh, that had a section devoted to uh, Jack the Ripper. And... So what I did was I took a series of photographs as we went through the space so I could actually doc document the sequence of events or the sequence through which you as a tourist would go through the space and experience or consume that space. So it starts out with um, this fake sign of Bucks Row, in, which would have been in, in the East End of London at that time. And then, you know, warning, there was a ghastly murder and dreadful mutilation and so on. So you're shepherded into this space, and this is the very first thing you see. And then what happens is an actress comes out, and in a faux Cockney accent, 
uh, talks about the horrible misdeeds of Jack the Ripper and um, you you are told some context about about the the Ripper murders and then you go in and they use wax this is a wax dummy recreation of a crime scene sorry I should have given you a warning uh, that this was coming up but this is essentially what a crime this is what the crime tourism feeds off of it's feeds off faux horror faux gore and um, the shock and titillation of crime and I can explain that to you or I can capture it in a photograph that will resonate much more emotionally and mentally with the person that's consuming my images and my write-up and my analysis of the site then there's more again more faux gore and so on this is a, rep, uh, a replication of a of a of a jack one of jack the ripper's most infamous crime scenes uh and of course at this original crime scene somebody had written this graffiti the jews are the men that will be that will not be blamed for nothing um and the 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 whole anti-Semitic con uh, content is, you know, part and parcel of the Jack the Ripper story and how it was framed in media at the time. And so, of course, this this recreates that sort of experience of what it was like to be in the East End of London at this time and, and what was going on socially, culturally, but also in terms of the horror of this event. Then the next thing we get, and I'm not, I have no idea other than the faux gore, is we get a faux autopsy scene. And um, with a, a, rec, a recreation, supposedly, of this uh, pathologist doing an autopsy on one of the victims. And then we go from that into a faux courtroom. We're ushered in to this courtroom. We're not quite sure. I, as somebody that, that loved um, old... Uh, English trials, I recognize that this was meant to be a, re re recreation, a recreation of the old Bailey courtroom. The judge comes in and pronounces sentence on Jack the Ripper. This, of course, is completely now an imaginary scene because Jack the Ripper was never identified and charged at the time. And then we move into what would have happened to Jack if Jack would have been caught. And then we have a faux execution scene. And again, this is meant to be fun for the whole family. So if you're repulsed by this, imagine taking your kids to, to consume this as part of a fun a family outing for the day. This is, I remember what this is. This is the London Dungeon. And they also have similar uh, venues in, in Edinburgh and a couple of other sites in the UK as well. So again, can you imagine going through this as a researcher trying to document, okay, now we went here and this is what we did as opposed to just taking photographs. And of course, the other thing too with taking photographs is as a tourist consuming this space, taking photographs looks normal. Stopping to carefully document everything and write everything down, everybody would have been staring at me like I was some sort of a weirdo. Uh, but the photography, hey, you know, this is before selfies, kids. So I did not selfie but it would have been completely normal and natural as a researcher to pretend selfie through my, my way through this. When it comes to doing using uh, pictures as field notes, there are a number of technological and other issues that you face as a researcher. The number one issue that constantly 
not so much anymore. Thank you, uh, Apple. Love you. Love you, Apple. With my new iPhone 11, I have lots and lots of um, battery power and storage. But back in the old days, we used to actually use real cameras. And well, I shouldn't say real cameras like that, but we used to use cameras that didn't also make phone calls and text message. And inevitably, there'd be issues around batteries uh, and power supply and so on. Another issue is visibility. It is very difficult sometimes to get that perfect shot that you want because it's it's difficult to see. There's people walking through. Um, uh, you know, there's usually some head right in front of my lens at the time. And of course, there's always some sort of possibility of malfunctions. This, in fact, the technology I'm using to record this lecture will probably malfunction 14 times, which is what happened to me this morning. No matter how well you plan for things, things always go wrong. You hit the wrong button, um, you don't record when you think you're recording, so on and so forth. There's also issues with print photo resolution, although, thank you, again, Apple, uh, a lot of the technological issues that we used to have with photo resolution are a thing of the past. But if you are recreating your images in print, so for a book or a journal article, you must have high quality publishable, printable photos of a sufficient resolution that they'll come through clearly. And that's something to think about when you're actually photographing. Printing, not so much of an issue anymore. And of course, ethics. We'll talk a little bit as we go through each of the different elements of visual sociology, but ethics. When I'm in a space such as uh, at the London Dungeon and I'm taking pictures and there are people there that are consuming the space, Yes, it is a semi-public space. However, I my ethical stance is that if you're in public and I take your photograph, that's totally normal, that happens all the time. If I reproduce your photo that I've taken in public, I usually X out your face or your head so that there's no identifying information about you. Um, the exception, of course, is, and this is just for the purposes of uh, this course, the exception, of course, was the example I used from a mom. But if I was actually publishing that, I would, I would, I would X out that guy's face, put a little um, blur thing happening there. If you're in a semi-public, uh, semi-private space, I think the same rules apply. If you are in a private space, you should have the permission of your research participants. No research ethics board is going to sign off on you going into private spaces and, and taking people's images without their permission. That's just not going to happen. I think you should also err on the side of caution with respect to photographing people in, in public and semi-public spaces as well. I try to avoid it unless I'm capturing some aspect of a social interaction. Sometimes I'll capture that just for my own notes but if I'm capturing it to recreate it in some type of public content or potentially public content, I try to be very careful about it. Okay. When it comes, another thing that you can do is you can study the images of others. Other pe people's pictures can tell us a lot about society. And one of my favorite examples is from a piece of research that was done by Karen Beckman. And it was called From Dead Woman Glowing, Carla Faye Tucker and the Aesthetics of Death Row Photography. 
for those of you that don't know, and again, I, this is, you know, I'm using my own um, interest, my own work here, so sorry, it's going to be very crime-related. Carla Faye type Of course. Of, absolutely, of course. Lucy, come here. Let's see if this is actually going to work. Lucy, come. Bribery. Hang on one sec. I have to bribe a dog. I'll be right back. Okay, sorry about that. So Carla Faye Tucker was a woman that was accused of and uh, convicted of a very brutal uh, double murder. And um, before she was executed, she had a death row conversion to Christianity. And as a consequence, her case was adopted by a number of Christian groups who were arguing that she ought not to be executed. Um, and Beckman essentially writes this piece that critiques how Carla Faye gets adopted and how her case is um, then presented and represented through media who recast her in this sort of glowing light in contrast to how uh, African-American women who are also on death row are treated by not only advocate gr advocacy groups but also by the media. And um, what Beckman says is that the journalist's self-proclaimed excess of chivalry and feeling for Tucker simultaneously mobilized and cloaked insidious fantasies about femininity, which invited the nation to pay attention to the beautiful female body for the ultimate purpose of its eradication. And when you hear that or you read that, you're like, oh, well, like what? Like, you know, you might be sort of like, mm, I don't really kind of get what she's talking about here. What what is what does Beckman mean? Well, Beckman compares images of Carla Faye Tucker to imagery that we see uh, of, of martyred saints such as Beata Beatrix, which is a, a Rossetti portrait of this beautiful saint who is martyred and she's cast in this gorgeous glow, not unlike pho photographs that we find of Carla Faye Tucker on death row. And there's uh, numerous images of Carla Faye Tucker who appears as this very slight, meek um, woman who is uh, very soft, very feminine, and so on. Hardly the image of this brutal murder uh, that she had been portrayed as in her court case. And again, this imagery stands into sharp contrast of how other women, particularly women of color, have been portrayed on death row. So that this is an example of using other images to convey a deeper social meaning about uh, an issue or phenomenon. Here's some photographs that I used in my crime tourism research. I was interested in how people photograph themselves in relation to uh, crime and atrocity tourism. And these are pictures that I found on a website. The Texas Girls Choir were posing in front of the ovens at Dachau. 
And um, when I showed this image at a conference, uh, I received a lot of criticism. So I was actually stopped in the middle of the presentation. People were very critical of my use of this image on the grounds that these are just children. Uh, how dare I, you, you know, they don't understand the full enormity of what it means to pose, selfie, if you will, in front of uh, the ovens at Dachau. And then I said, just a second, and I put up this image. The chaperones also posed around the, these ovens. And that to me, is, it's indicative of how people consume spaces because they're associated with horrible atrocities and so on. But there's not, there's not a lack, uh, there's a lack of self-awareness or reflexivity about what it means to pose in front of these as though you were posing at next to Lincoln statue at the Lincoln Memorial or next to um, some other uh, tourist interest, object of interest. By the way, one of the things that I documented in the research that I did was all sorts of examples of, of this type of consumption of these spaces. Uh, I was at Auschwitz and saw very similar behavior. At Dachau myself, I watched people with their small children having picnics and taking photographs on the lawns. This is not, this is not an uh, abnormal behavior, quite frankly. This is fairly common behavior. And it's very meaningful. I think it's something, it's, it's about how we use spaces and how spaces that are fraught with, should be fraught with certain types of historical meaning, um, how they get commoditized and consumed in ways that once, they're, once, once we've created the space, we sort of lose control over memory, that, you know, these deeper memories. All right, let me go on here. There are certain limits to using others' pics. One, of course, is copyright issues. I'm using these images in talks. I am not. I did not replicate these images in print work. Uh, also, there's fair use issues about invading other people's privacy and so on. There's another set of issues I think we need to talk about, and it comes around. As I, you know, as I was talking about how people consume certain types of space, there's a whole um, area of photography where individuals have, through intention or accident, captured horrific events. And I'm thinking about not just the world, um, the World Trade Center and the planes colliding into the building, but in the aftermath of that, there were photographs taken of a number of people who, assessing their situation, opted to jump out of, the out of the buildings. And there was a lot of debate and discussion about whether or not those photographs should be replicated or consumed in any type of a way. What's interesting is these arguments about consumption of, of these types of terrific, uh, terrifically horrible events and people's last minutes and their right to some sort of sense of privacy around their, their death, these 
these discussions have been going on for several decades. So there's a great book, the name of which escapes me, but I will post it as soon as I remember. There's a fantastic book about similar other types of events that occurred in the 1930s and 1940s that were sometimes reproduced in uh, newspaper articles and sometimes weren't. It was, it's not uncommon. For example, in the 1920s, 1929, with the Wall Street stock market crash, there were several reports of people on Wall Street jumping out of buildings to commit suicide. And people that happened to be there just taking photographs. Also, fires. Uh, a lot of, you know, in the 1930s and the 40s and 20s and so on, there were a lot of fires in hotels, in um, residential buildings and so on. And sometimes when people were trapped, again, very similarly, would leap to their death. And should those photographs actually be replicated in news media or even used in research? These are ethical issues, and I think they're issues that have to be dealt with with sensitivity and care for people, not just the people who are consuming the images, but also for the families of those people that, that died. Um, we also see this with the return of... of um, with the return of, of soldiers or other military personnel coming from conflict zones. So should those images be used and so on. And there's debates pro and con about a lot of this. Do I have a conclusive answer? No, I do not. Um, I have my own opinions and feelings about these things. But I think there's there's some, been some strong arguments on both sides. And I leave that to you to decide for yourself as many of these ethical issues, again, there's no clear-cut sense of right and wrong. Let's talk about using photos to communicate ideas. One of the things I love is about visual sociology, visual criminology, is the ability to tell a story in a single picture. This photograph I took, and it this is the women's, this is the women's washroom in a homeless shelter. And it is an ad for women who have been affected by domestic violence and abuse to, to reach out for help. And as you can see, every single tab has been taken. So if you want to have, a, uh, if you want to have an emotional resonance to an argument about how homeless shelters, how women using homeless shelters often are the victims of some type of abuse, including domestic violence, this is a great way to illustrate that. This is a photograph that I took on the streets of San Francisco a number of years ago when I, before I started doing my PhD. This cat is the beloved pet of a homeless man who makes his living, um, such as it is, by panhandling on the streets of San Francisco in the tourist area. And um, when I, 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 you know, I, I cannot walk by an animal. I, I, just, I just, you know, I've got to stop and pet and chat. So I got into a, a really interesting discussion with this fellow about his situation with his cat. In San Francisco, um, at the time, I don't know if this is still the case, but this would have been in about, I want to say about 2000, the police were practicing broken windows policing and they were targeting anything to do with uh, homelessness with tickets. 
if you were somebody who was given a ticket for panhandling or any or camping outside or anything else related to homelessness, you often, quite frankly, a good serious chunk of the time could not afford to pay these tickets. What was the point of the tickets? Well, if you had outstanding fines, you could be arrested and serve up to 30 days for your unpaid fines. And so basically it became a measure uh, for police to basically sweep homelessness off the public streets of San Francisco. And uh, futilely, by the way, because it's a very short-term solution to a very serious problem. This particular fellow had a very heartbreaking story. This cat is the only thing in his life, and he loves this cat, and he takes fantastic care of this cat. But he has outstanding fines. And if he gets picked up for those outstanding fines, he goes to jail and his cat goes to an animal shelter. This image was not only used in my PhD and then in the subsequent book that I produced, but it's actually the reason why I did my PhD and why I did it on this particular topic. I never forgot this image and a picture of it sat on my desk for many, many years until I got rid of my desk. Um, It haunted me. This idea that we have become such a punitive society that that this is an acceptable response to homelessness. And quite frankly, most of the police officers I talked to in San Francisco didn't support what they were doing. Most of the frontline police officers in the Tenderloin were not supportive of this. They knew they were just cycling people through the system. And that's basically what I wrote about. Here's more pictures that I took from my PhD. This is in Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh. This is a churchyard. This is essentially a gravesite. And Skippering is is is, is what we would call camping, if you will. Homeless individuals would frequently choose, as opposed to staying at shelters or in other other spaces, they would choose to go and stay in an enclosed vault area of a cemetery because it was safer, they had some level of privacy, and... um, yeah, they were, they were safe from the elements because they were enclosed in. And so what you see here is the debris that clearly illustrates that people have been, have been using this space. Here's a photograph I took a few years back of Detroit. I want to talk about the economic uh, devastation that hit Detroit in the aftermath of the economic collapse in 2008. Well... You want a great shot of this? This is downtown Detroit. And what you see is entire blocks of the city that were either completely empty buildings or with a few squatters living there. In some cases, they were just empty lots. There, was no, there wasn't even a building. I remember uh, driving through one particular area to visit a homeless shelter, and there was just like block after block of grass And I didn't realize we were actually in the downtown core. 
So again, I can explain what happened to Detroit or I can show people what happened to Detroit. Oh, we already got that one. Uh, here's another picture I took. This is from the work that I did on atrocity tourism. This is Birkenau. And the, this is uh, barbed wire at Birkenau. This is Birkenau is essentially where the trains came in to Auschwitz. I can talk about what it was like to be there as a tourist consuming this space, or I can give you a visual image. And this image contrasts to a lot of the other pictures that I took of parts of Auschwitz, which, which that were a highly curated uh, experience for tourists. You move from that highly curated experience to Birkenau, which is essentially open area like this with a couple of, of recreated um, dorm buildings. And literally the hair stood on my arms as I was standing there looking at this, taking this picture. Here's a building, one of the buildings that was uh, rebuilt, recreated at Burke Canal. And again, I can talk about what it, what it was like to be there as a, as a consumer of an experience or I can show you and you can start to get, develop your own insights based on what I present to you, which as a, as a sociologist slash criminologist sometimes is preferable to me. Here's a picture I took in Vancouver's downtown east side a number of years ago when I was conducting field research for my PhD. You want to talk about how hard life is in the downtown east side historically? I have a great picture. This is an empty bottle of Listerine. The downtown east side, and I trace the history of it going back to the late 1800s, there has been a significant problem with addiction for since the very beginning of its founding. And when pe people often don't really understand the nature of addiction and how serious this is, that think about it, that you would be so driven to have to ha consume alcohol that you would drink Listerine. And quite frankly, this Listerine is preferable to some of the other street drinks that were available at very low cost and readily available in the downtown east side. When I worked in the downtown east side in the late 1990s, before, um, before a, a police sergeant, then inspector, uh, Ken Frail, uh, got involved, this might have been an empty bottle of rice wine, which has a significant con salt content and essentially killed killed the kidneys of people that were that were drink, consuming it. So again, I can show you all sorts of different images to capture some elements of a site. This one really speaks to me and it spoke to the people that were trying to get a sense from reading what I had to say about what it would be potentially like to be in this space. Let's talk very quickly about creating documentaries. Again, this is very underdeveloped area of uh, visual sociology. Hmm. Sorry, had to wet the whistle with a little caffeine. Also, the brain needs frequent infusions of caffeine, as you all know. So sociology is film work. One of my favorite examples 
is the film uh, the documentary filmmaker Errol Morris and this is from his documentary Standard Operating Procedure which was about the atrocities at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq and again we can talk about these things or he can take you through a visual curating if you will a visual or a visual experience that helps you to develop insights into what happened, why it happened, what the consequences of that are. If anybody's thinking about documentary work uh, as visual sociology, strongly encourage you to do that. And please let me know so I can include more slides. Photo elicitation. This is an interviewing or focus group technique in which the interviewer elicits the thoughts, the beliefs, the experiences of a participant through discussion of a photo that is intended or some type of an image is intended to spark a discussion. The image that I've got here, this is a postcard from World War I that my great uncle Jack Elgood sent to my great grandmother in 1916. And it was meant, this is him in a trench digging a trench in France on the battle, you know, on the front lines towards where the battlefields are going to be, right? And here he is digging away and of course the rats in the trench and so on are represented and he says, just a song at twilight, question mark. And why this particular image? Well, if I had the opportunity to interview people who had been involved in war, I might use an image like this to spark a discussion about the some of the brutal aspects of what it's like to be in war and and also some of the mundane aspects of 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 being at war as well. A lot of time just spent in the trench just waiting for things to happen. That's not different from a lot of time spent in camps waiting for something to happen or uh, in different missions waiting for something to happen and so on. So sometimes, you know, people often think, well, you use a photo that's directly relevant to somebody's experience, especially if you're dealing with something that's potentially traumatic for the person. I wouldn't do that. You want to give very careful thought to the types of photos that you use to elicit a discussion. And so, as I say, um, this particular image will resonate perhaps with somebody who's been in that situation, but this isn't direct representation of their experience. Photo voice. This is a form of participatory action research in which participants actively create data through capturing and interpreting their own images. And then they share those images as part of the research experience. And they also share their interpretations as part of the research experience. I know I probably should have used something more directly relevant to the research, aspect of this discussion, but I don't care. I want to talk about one of my favorite projects, which is Hope in Shadows. In the downtown east side of Vancouver, a number of years ago, uh, a local group started a project where they gave cameras to local residents who were interested, and they said, go out and just take pictures. We'll develop the pictures. This is, you know, before the iPhone. We'll develop the pictures. Uh, I think they actually gave them disposable cameras. And so they, de they developed the pictures and then they had a photo competition and created a calendar. And now that calendar, they raised funds to keep the project going. I love this idea. And also as, uh, as somebody who is interested in 
using other people's images to unpack interesting aspects of community. This is a fantastic project. So these are some images. Uh, this is the 2020 calendar. By the way, it's still for sale in case you're interested. You could just Google Hope and Shadows. You, um, you get to see some of the, the photographs also on the website that were taken uh, and, uh, and submitted as part of the competition. There was, there's usually an annual uh, vote as to what's gonna get included. And these are meant to be representations of the community that counter the traditional stigmatizing views and language and rhetoric and discourse and so on around the downtown east side. When I was a kid growing up, I remember taking the, um, I think it was, was it the number two or the number three, the main street bus that used to run through there as a child with my grandmother. And back in the day, I'm dating myself a bit, Back in the day, what you would find is um, alcoholics that were passed out in, in um, and door entryways because this was a site where men, typically men and some women, but predominantly men, working men who'd been out involved in, in different industries such as logging and mining and so on, they retired, oftentimes not with too much money, and... Um, and they developed addictions. They either came with addictions or they developed addictions. And the term that was used back in the day was skid row. And that term goes back to the late 1800s and it has to do with logging skids. But it also came to mean pejoratively a place where you skid down. You start up in some sort of esteemed sort of circle in life and then you skid down to skid row. Again, very stigmatizing way of thinking about this community. This project and similar others was, is, is intended to counteract some of that and to focus on downtown Eastside as a community filled with people who are engaged in all sorts of different types of activities, who have different types of relationships and so on. And um, that's one of the reasons why I really love this project. I, I picked a couple of images that I really, that really speak to me. Uh, I think this is a fantastic image, and again, this is the cover of the of the calendar. Uh, I I just yeah, I just love the affection here. Uh, this one is called Brothers, and this I also love. I think I have long loved West Coast Indigenous art. I have some in my home. It it speaks to me of my childhood. And it speaks to me of just the beautiful, just the beautiful elements of British Columbia and indigenous contributions to, to beautiful British Columbia. Just, yeah, I love it. This one, of course, I gotta get a dog in there. This one is cutely named, uh, Can I Fit My Ears In Here? And again, this is, it speaks to a different aspect of this community. This isn't about drugs. This isn't about addiction. This isn't about sex work. This isn't about all the stuff that people focus on and the media focuses on as well. And about crime. This is about somebody taking a cute picture of their pet just like everybody else does. And that's why it speaks to me because it speaks about those common, they all speak to me about the common bonds that we have as human beings. And that ultimately is what visual sociology can and should do. It should 
elicit in the viewer some type of an emotional and intellectual connection that speaks to you in a much more powerful way in some respects than words can. And on that note, you know what also speaks to me? Growling and barking, which is about exactly what's about to happen right now. So Lucy is indicating that we are done for today and I'm calling a break. So uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, I'll be posting another one of these shortly.